Welcome to the Indigenous United Podcast, a production of the Native American Student Development Office at UC Berkeley. I'm Fallon. I'm Alexi. I'm Matea. This is a podcast about Indigenous issues important to us as Indigenous students at UC Berkeley. Since we are recording here uh, at Berkeley, we'd like to recognize that Berkeley does sit on the territory of Huichen, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chichenyo Ohlone. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm indigenous sovereignty and will work to hold University of California Berkeley more accountable to the needs of American Indian and indigenous peoples. Welcome back to this next episode of the Indigenous United podcast. Today we're bringing you part two of our series on Ohlone history with an interview with Val Lopez, the chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band. Ate and I were fortunate enough to sit down with Val in person before this shelter-in-place order was issued a few months ago, and we're excited to bring you this episode. Val has been the chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band since 2003. He was also influential in forming the Amamutsun Land Trust and is the president of the Land Trust today. Val has spoken on a number of issues, including the canonization of Junipero Serra and issues around protecting sacred sites at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. He also is very active in language revitalization and is a traditional dancer for the Amamutsun. Uh, I myself am a tribal member of the Amamutsun tribe, and Val has been influential in his leadership and support for tribal youth. You mentioned the canonization of Junipero Serra. And um, I know this is something Karina touched on a little bit too, but can you just describe what that is? Yeah, totally. So canonization just refers to the process of converting a person to sainthood in the Catholic Church. And so Junipero Serra was the Spanish priest who helped found the California mission. And so in 2015, there was a big push to make him a saint. And a lot of the indigenous communities that were affected by uh, these California missions, which killed tens of thousands of California Indians were obviously upset about this. And he ended up becoming canonized and becoming a saint and is recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church. Uh, but a lot of indigenous communities, including our community, Damamutsun, continue to oppose the idea of this man being a saint. That's so awful. Well, he was also canonized by Pope Francis, who is kind of recognized widely as a very progressive pope who has issued apologies to the indigenous peoples of Americas about colonization and the Catholic history uh, related to colonization here in the Americas. But at the same time, he was the one who approved the canonization of Sarah. So it was very interesting when he made that move. Yeah, it definitely felt a little tone deaf and offbeat for his reign. Is that what you call a popeship? The time that a pope is in office? Is it a reign? I don't know. In some ways, though, it seems really in line with a lot of these apologies, right? Like the Canadian government's apologies. It's like, okay, well, thank you for your apology. We would love our land back, or we would love the colonized man who murdered thousands to not be glorified in your organization. Um, And these kinds of actions mean a lot more than, hey, I'm sorry, or some really empty apology. You also mentioned he is the founder of the Amamutsun Land Trust. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is? Sure, yeah. So there's been kind of a move to establish land trusts, and uh, our previous interviewee, Karina, uh, also established a native land trust. Right. And 
I think the main thing for the land trust for us is its ability to have its 501c3 status and for us to hold grants and to run projects as an unrecognized tribe. There's not really ways for us to, to hold certain land status forms or um, employ tribal members in certain ways. So this was kind of a way for us to get around that. Um, and then also kind of shows that our interest really is in stewardship and around land issues, because I mean, so many native peoples do have uh, a prioritization of traditional territories and being able to govern their, their traditional territory. Yeah. And the 501c3 is just uh, like means you're a designated nonprofit. So you don't have to pay taxes on the land, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've been able to spend the last two summers out um, on state parks land technically, but the lands that we steward and stewardship kind of just refers to the idea that yeah, humans do have a certain connection with the land and are embedded in the ecological and landscape features. And as indigenous peoples of this region where we stewarded out in the Santa Cruz area, we were kind of affirming that we did have a sense of belonging there. Even if it was state parks land, it was still our homelands and we were stewarding it and taking care of that and having these relationships with the land. And so, yeah, I really like this idea of a land trust. And it's really interesting because so many traditional land trusts are about holding land and that ownership is still embedded in land trust today. All right, let's go to this interview. We'd just like to start off by uh, allowing Chairman Lopez to introduce himself and the way he feels best. My name is Valentin Lopez, and I'm the chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band. Today, this taping is taking place in Berkeley, California, which we recognize uh, the descendants from here as Chocheno, and we give them off uh, blessings and prayers to their people and their future descendants. We also recognize Karina Gould and Charlene Nimjed, who are representing these territories today. Could you just define, if possible, the traditional territory of the Amamutsun people? Um, the traditional territory of the Amamutsun, it goes from King City up to Coyote Valley, just south of San Jose. To the east is the Diablo Range, the ridge line of the Diablo Range. And to the west, it's a ridge line of the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Gabalon Range. We're here today to kind of just discuss issues that are related to the Ohlone. So a lot of students here at UC Berkeley know that we're on the unceded territories of the Ohlone people, but we know that there's a lot of complexities behind that. Uh, and we're interested in seeing, so how does Amamutsun and the Ohlone um, relate to one another? Well, we recognize that our tribe is um, identified in just about everywhere as Ohlone, but it's not a term that we subscribe or that we want to use. Um, the word Ohlone comes from the tribe that was at Pescadero. That tribe was the Ohon tribe, O-L-J-O-N. And um, they had their own powerful community and tribe there at Pescadero. And then whenever the Spanish and the missions came, they referred to these people as the Ohone people. And then soon, they started referring to all coastal people north to San Francisco and south to Monterey as the Ohone people. In 1923, when Krober wrote the Handbook of California Tribes, he used the word Ohlone in writing 
for the first time. He misspelled it. He used O-L-H-O-N-E, O-H-O-N-E, versus O-L-J-O-N, O-H-O-N. So um, they didn't even get the spelling right. But because it was in that handbook of California tribes, it had to be true. And so today we are, you know, people we are referred to as Ohlone. Uh, to me, that's not a word that, that applies to our people at all. We don't know what Ohlone is. If they mean to call us Ohoni, they're giving us someone else's identity. That tribe disrespects that, the Ohoni people by giving us their identity. And it disrespects us by trying to force another tribe's identity on us. So today, um, we're pretty adamant that we want to be recognized as the Ama Mutsum tribe. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and so, you know, we know that the politics in the Bay Area and the, the many indigenous nations here um, identifies different things, and we know it's kind of complex. Uh, can, can you speak to kind of the history of becoming unrecognized? Because we know that the Ama Mutsum are a federally unrecognized tribe, but not a lot of people understand that. We know that there's a lot of recognized nations who have their sovereignty here, but we know the Ohlone people have those issues and struggles with sovereignty. Not only the Ohlone people, the Shumash, and to the north and south, there's many, many federally unrecognized tribes. And um, it causes us a lot of difficulty, you know, because if we claim our identity as a tribe, they'll say, well, you're not a federally recognized tribe. Like there's a fine distinction and we're less than the federally recognized tribes. It's important for people to know that, we, you know, we did sign a treaty. And that many of the tribes that are federally unrecognized to date did sign treaties. In 1851, they found, in 1848 rather, they found gold. And when they found gold, people from across the United States and across the world were going up into the mountains, um, claim, make, stake their claim and to find gold and to become rich. They started tearing up the mountains and disrespecting the land and the spiritual spirituality of the lands, etc. And so the tribes started to defending their lands to try to prevent the, those gold miners from going up into the mountains. And that was seen as an Indian problem. The Indians were causing trouble. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the, both the federal government and the state government developed plans to deal with the Indian problem. The federal government, they sent commissioners <clears throat> to California to negotiate treaties. And those treaties, they were not really negotiated. There was no back and forth, I'm sure. But the treaties were written to give the California Indians 8.5 million acres, mostly on the, in the interior valley of California, and those 8.5 million acres were going to be spread over 18 reservations. Um, with that plan, they started getting Indians to sign up for it, and it's kind of like, sign the treaty or, or you'll be lost, gone. With, you know, you'll be dealt with another way. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of tribes signed that treaty, including our tribe. The ones that those treaties were signed, the commissioners signed them, and then they were sent to Washington, D.C. to be ratified um, by the U.S. Senate and signed by the president. The state of California did not want those treaties ratified. And so the state of California passed a resolution 
asking the President and the U.S. Senate to not ratify the treaties. Uh, once that resolution passed, they sent a delegation to Washington, D.C. to present the resolution and to lobby against the signing of those treaties. Uh, it didn't take much arm twisting. The federal government fairly quickly, well actually it was the President that decided very quickly that he was going to order that those treaties be sealed for 50 years and they were never ratified. Uh, the Indians who were waiting for those treaties to take effect never heard a thing back from the federal government at all during that time. Now that was a federal approach to the Indian problem. The state of California had a much different agenda. They didn't want those treaties or the reservations to be established. What they wanted was extermination of the Indians. And they pursued that a number of ways. In the very first State of the Union of, of California, Governor Peter J. Burnett included in the, in the State of the Union that, that there will be a war of extermination against the California Indians, that is to be expected. So in the very first State of the Union, the governor is stating exactly what he wants to happen to California Indians, and that was extermination. The state of California did not want reservations, they did not want treaties, they wanted extermination and be done with the, be done with the problem. With that, the state went about its business. Well, one of the first things they did was pass a treasury bond. It was one of the first treasury bonds passed by the state of California. And, and treasury bonds are for the public good. It passed a treasury bond to pay for the extermination of California Indians. Um, and that bond, they collected $1.7 to $1.8 million. And that was in 1851 dollars, so that was a lot of money uh, to pay for the extermination of California Indians. And they used that money, the, the two primary ways they used that money, number one, was to pay bounties to kill Indians. And the going rate for bounties was 25 cents to five dollars for every Indian scalp. Some people turned in over a thousand scalp. And that's just a horrible thing to think of. In the city of Santa Cruz, there was a legal column that was printed in 1873. And that was about 20 years later since the Treasury bond passed, and that legal notice from Santa Cruz County <clears throat> said that the county will no longer pay bounty money for Indian scalps. So up until 1873, they were paying bounty money. Some bounty monies made, uh, you know, I, I said that one you know, person turned in well over a thousand Indian scalps, but some people made uh, a lot of money. And there's a town now in Northern California, and I'm forgetting the name of the town, but he bought all of his land with bounty money. Wow. And that town is named after him today. Here, Chairman Lopez is referring to Kelseyville. You know, what could be more disgusting mm -hmm. than to have the name of a town named after the bounty hunter responsible for that, that, that kind of death? The other thing they did was pay militias to go out, find Indians, and kill them. Many of those militias went up into the hills to hunt down the tribes that were near where the gold sites were. And they found them and they killed them. And those militias, they were rewarded very handsomely. They were, you know, paid, um, I believe it was over $6 a day. And that was, that was a lot of money in those days for a salary. They also charged for every bullet they shot, they, you know, and they charged for the rifles and the equipment and everything they got. They got reimbursed for every expense related to that effort. And those records are available. 
And when you look at them again, uh, that's, that's pretty darn disgusting that they killed, went out and killed the number of Indians that they did. So those are two of the big things about the early history of California uh, that tie to why we're not federally recognized. There, there, there are others, but those are the primary ones. I'm wondering, you know, you're talking about how California's um, initial policy was extermination. Do you feel that that's changed very much, you know, moving to current times? Well, interesting. Uh, when I talk, I say that the colonizers, and that's all three periods of colonizers for our tribe and coastal tribes, and that were, those colonizers were the Spanish missions, the Mexican, and the American and all three of those periods wanted to destroy our cultures, our environment, our spirituality, and our humanity, our, 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 our being human beings. The, you know, it's, it's changed in the sense that, you know, they're no longer paying bounty money. You know, it's still, it, today it's illegal to go out and kill an Indian on the street simply because he's Indian. But that... Genocide, and that's exactly what it was. That genocide control continues against us today in the, in, in the form of the destruction of our cultural sites, our spiritual sites, and our environment. Today, they're in our Amamutsun territory, the most sacred site of the Amamutsun people is Eurostock, which is south of Gilroy. And there's an effort to at the spot of our where we held our big head dances to do sand and gravel mining and to bring down four mountains four very sacred mountains of our people and bring them down for the purpose of taking out the 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 sand and the gravel and selling it you know and there's not much difference from fighting and destroying cultures and peoples for gold versus destroying Native spirituality, culture, environments for sand and gravel. And there's laws in the books that make that legal. So what we say is that the, the laws of destruction, laws of domination, laws of you know, times of genocide, those never ended. They just evolved. And they evolved to those illegal and immoral and really sinful acts that allow our resources to be destroyed that way. Mm. Can you tell our listeners what they might be able to do to help you in your fight to protect your stock? Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. Well, and it's not only our tribe. All tribes face this. So they don't, you know, they want to help the tribe in their area. That's equally important. I don't want to point out that, mm-hmm. you know, that our tribe struggle is, is a particular importance or particular urgency. Urgent. They are all urgent and important. Mm-hmm. Um, for Eurostock, we have a campaign to protect Eurostock is the title of the campaign. And um, we ask people to get involved and to help us and to support us. Um, for protect, If they went to our website, uh, protecteurostock.org, and Eurostock is spelled J-U-R-I-S-T-A-C, they would see all that we have done. You know, I spoke at the United Nations on this issue. A couple of years back, and we were speaking at, at the United Nations again this year in April. And you know, when they see, go to, to that site, they'll see a petition where they can sign. That's probably the 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 first and easiest thing for them to do. And tell the the county planners and the county boards of supervisors that the native tribes have paid enough of a price. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had the majority, the vast, vast majority 
of our cultural and spiritual sites destroyed. There's very few remaining. And tell, let the county know that it's time that they stop that destruction and they start work to preserve these sites and to work with the native tribes to ensure that their culture, their environments, their spiritualities can, can be restored and continued into the future. Uh, once they sign that petition, we ask them to send it to their friends, their families, their social media networks, uh, their, their own school, send it to your classmates, etc. And help us push that uh, petition out so we can get as many signatures as we can. The other thing we ask is that they write letters to the Board of Supervisors in support of protecting Eurostock. It could be a very simple letter. It could be two or three sentences. You know, my name is so-and-so. You know, we support the Amamutsin tribe. Please recognize the preservation of their culture, environment, spirituality is vitally important and deny that grant. It could be a simple message like that. Mm -hmm. But we do ask them to write to the County Board of Supervisors and the planners. When they sign the petition, there is a, wait, a box that they can check to stay updated on our Protect Your Stock campaign. So they'll be notified. And then one of the notifications coming up fairly soon will be when the draft environmental impact report is released. Mm -hmm. And so we ask them to look through that there and comment on it. Mm -hmm. And let, let them know that, you know, that you support the Amamutsin and you support the the wildlife corridors, for example, you know, um, write down those things and tell them that they're vitally important. So those are some things that um, the listeners can do to help us. And frankly, and quite honestly, they can do that. That is true for just about all tribes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So thank you. And um, just to give our listeners perspective, Chairman Lopez has been uh, our tribal chairman for almost 20 years now, and he's worked tirelessly to to help our issues to raise awareness around um, who the Amamutsun people are and protecting sacred sites and stewardship. And Chairman, I know you, you work tirelessly and I'm, I'm curious about what keeps you going. What, how do you have hope for the future and um, what inspires you to, to do all the work that you do? Well, the true history of California Indians and the true history of the Amamutsun has never been told. You know, nothing but a a tiny footnote or a, or a caricature or, you know, um, something from the uh, distance past that doesn't, that's not here today. Um, when I got elected chair, an elder told me that it's time for us to start talking to the public, letting them know who we are. And then they said, and when you talk, always tell our history and always tell the truth. And so a big part of the work we do is try to get the truth told about the Amamutin and who we are. And then um, another thing they told me that my, I carry with me is that, that when I speak now, and I, I don't speak only for myself, I speak for all the Mutin descendants that have come before me, I speak for our current membership, and I speak for all future descendants. And so I recognize the you know, how powerful and important it is that I'm very careful with what I say and that I only speak the truth and I only speak with words that will bring honor and recognition to our ancestors and, um, and our future descendants. And just knowing that, how important that is, I mean, that's, that's what motivates me and that's 
why not only me, but so many members of our tribe uh, work so hard. Is there anything else that you'd like our audience members to know about Amamutsun or about um, issues that they could help with or anything else? Well, with this opportunity, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you, everyone, to know about our Amamutsun Land Trust. And that right there was um, an important program of our, of our tribe. In 2012, we developed an Amamutsun Land Trust. And we have four goals for our land trust. To do research on our territories, to learn what the landscapes look like before first contact, and then to restore them. And that requires us to restore that indigenous knowledge of land stewardship and stewardship of coastal resources. And we've been working hard to do that. And we feel quite confident that we'll, we will soon have 90 to 95% of that indigenous knowledge of our ancestors, of how they took care of the land, so that we can restore traditional native stewardships to our land. We also have an education program where we educate our members and educate our, uh, the public as well on what traditional native stewardship of the land means and uh, what they can do to help. The third thing it does is um, protecting and conserving our sacred sites and our cultural sites. And we fight hard for the protection of our lands. Currently we're dealing with issues with that sacred mountain, Eurostock, but we also have the high-speed rail coming through, looking to destroy seven major village sites. Mm. We have a, a new Pacheco Dam that's being proposed and to be built within our territory, and that's going to impact up to 22 cultural sites. And then there's a proposal in San Benito County to develop these business nodes, which are nothing but large business strips off the freeway at four different locations and all four of them are on two of them are on sacred sites and two others are on cultural sites and so we're opposing all of them but that is difficult to be have to fight so darn hard for everything mm -hmm. but our that's that's what our tribe must do mm -hmm. and then the final thing is is restoring traditional stewardship to the lands, and I said that already, but we have a stewardship program uh, where we teach our youth um, and our young adults how to do traditional stewardship and then to actually do it on the ground. Mm -hmm. So today we have a stewardship core of um, approximately 10 uh, tribal members who are working, for example, their, their project now is we're clearing a large area um, of the coastal prairie. The coastal prairie, the central coast of California was a coastal prairie. It's not the redwood forest you see now. Mm. Uh, our people you know, kept it as an open grassland and it was the most biodiverse um, landscape in North America and had the most biodiversity in North America. And we're working hard to restore that mm. for those reasons. But that means we're having to cut down a lot of trees. And so we do, it's hard to get the support of the environmental Environmentals for that because they don't like cutting down trees, but we're doing what we have to do to accomplish that mm -hmm. So, you know, so we're very happy with our land trust and we invite others to come on out and see our work and to and to support us Well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. It's really been an honor to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you both I feel so fortunate that we have gotten two different interviews sort of from different parts of the Ohlone spectrum. So thank you, 
Alexi, for reaching out to your community and getting us connected with them. Yeah, and thank you everyone for tuning in to these two episodes and getting yourself informed about this important history of the land that our university sits on. This concludes our series on the Ohlone peoples. And this concludes our season of Indigenous United as well. Unfortunately, due to circumstances um, with the shelter in place, creating content was a bit more difficult this season, but Ate and I will be hopefully bringing you new content in the spring. And we'd just like to have a huge shout out to Fallon for graduating this year and finishing her degree and moving on from here. It was great to have her as a co-host and we wish her the best of luck in graduate school. Yeah, congratulations Fallon and congratulations to everyone who graduated. Hope you guys have a great summer and tune in in the fall for new episodes. Thanks so much for listening. We want to thank Venosha Bowerly at the Native American Student Development Office for always supporting us and helping make this podcast happen. And big thanks to Superman for letting us use his song, Prayer Loop.